You're listening to Vet Candy. You have a tiny six pound cat and we need to do open heart surgery. What did they say Correct. in that moment when you told them that their six pound precious kitten needed open heart surgery? Oh yeah. They were like, well, that means that sentence, you know, they were very pretty shocked. Uh, clearly they were not expecting an open heart surgery. And I think what we refer to open heart surgery in humans is something that, you know, nowadays is pretty common, but it's pretty serious. This episode is brought to you by Credelio for Cats. Welcome to the Vet Mysteries Podcast. My name is Dr. Courtney. I'm a board-certified veterinary surgeon and fiercely devoted to pet and animal health. This podcast is powered by Vet Candy, a multimedia platform offering diverse veterinary content produced by veterinary experts and key opinion leaders. In this podcast, we unravel some of the most baffling and fascinating cases in clinical veterinary medicine. Please let us know how you feel about these cases. You can find us on socials at Dr. Courtney DVM and at My Vet Candy. Now, let's get started. Today, we have a real treat, and I normally say that, and I'm totally joking, but today I am serious. We have a real treat for this Vet Mysteries podcast. Today, we are joined by Tomas, Dr. Tomas Infernuso. Dr. Fernuso, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Cordelio Cat Lotal Honor protects your cat from ticks and fleas, so you can be close. Cordelio Close, the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lotal Honor is a member of the Isox Azaline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Cordelio Close. Hey guys, thank, thanks so much, Kearney. Appreciate it. And uh, I'm delighted to be part of it. And uh, I'm really excited to really share this amazing case that everybody can learn from and um, could really make an impact. Oh, most definitely, most definitely. And I'm excited to hear about it too. I've been looking forward to this all week long. But before we jump right into it, I do want, if you could, to set the scene for us. Where exactly did you grow up? I'm from Italy originally. I grew up in Naples and I lived there for 20 years and then I moved to the United States. But three years later, in the meanwhile, I went from uh, Italy to Spain, Madrid for a year and then Canary Islands and then uh, went through the whole process of retrain, being retrained, going to Cornell and um, I've been in the United States for basically 20 years. Incredible. You lived on the Canary Islands. Yeah. Oh, well, that, that was a really nice treat. That is <laughs> that definitely sounds like straight paradise to me. So why veterinary medicine? A lot of people listening right now want to know what was that initial impetus? What was that spark that led you down the veterinary pathway? Yeah, I think genetic. Uh, I was born with that mission uh, to really serve the community and really help the animals. And I remember as a, as a little boy, I would look at um, I would look at animals and I was completely addicted. Um, I, I could not stop looking at them or being in contact with them. 
And then I had all this, uh, this crazy idea of, um, you know, figuring out the anatomy and to put things together. And uh, that, I think, led to my discovery of becoming a surgeon. So just a natural passion of um, just helping and fixing and that, that, that reward that you get by doing good and by serving. That natural passion of fixing and helping and that those two words, fixing and helping, certainly embody what it feels like to be a surgeon where you've got a very special scenario going right now. We have two board certified surgeons talking to each other. So I'm actually really excited about this. So when you talk about fixing and helping, what led you to pursue specialization in surgery? Yeah, I think mediocrity. I believe there are no limits. The sky's limitless. And when people um, just finish school and you go through all those years of training and you realize that you don't know anything, and then between internships and surgical internships and um, residency, you know, you add on another six years of specialized training, you feel like, wow, I think I just got the idea on the surface what a surgeon looks like. So the specialty world is very intriguing because you know, it pushes you, it pushes to improve and not to settle. And uh, I think get out of your comfort zone is going to a specialty world. So I don't think it's for everybody, but it, it really depends on the personality. If you're overachiever, you want to really make a change and make a difference. You got to push yourself, push your limits. And specialty is what led me to, you know, to keep on growing and never stop. Yeah, there's no doubt that, you know, doing, taking part in that, specialization journey, which I did as well, you took the three internships and the residency, you absolutely step out of your comfort zone and you really push the limits of what you think you can handle and your intellectual curiosity. So that is no doubt the case with pursuing specialization, but we're here to push the limits a little bit on interesting and fascinating cases. And that is essentially what we're here to talk about today. Help us out, set the scene for us on what patient that you saw that you actually found mysterious. Uh, I'm actually super excited about this when uh, you contacted me and you wanted to talk about one of the craziest cases that I was faced. I gotta tell you, I almost, <laughs> almost passed out in the surgery and then my heart dropped. And um, very interestingly, um, I'm gonna go into some singlemen's clinical signs um, diagnostics performed and uh, treatment. I am not going to reveal what the condition was so they can become um, a little surprised. You just let me know when I can uh, go on it and I can certainly start lifting a couple things. Yeah, what was the name of your patient? Yeah, the name was Journey. Uh, okay. Journey Smith. Journey um, Smith. It was, so t- yeah, sure, it tell was, us about so. that time when Journey walked in to your hospital. What was that like? Yeah, so first of all, it was Seven years ago, so I was still. I think I've been I've been a board surgeon for the past eleven years, so I had quite a experience on those specific complex cases. A uh, very cute cat. It was a Siamese uh, female intact, uh, roughly three kilograms. I believe it was like five months old, really tiny, a stunted growth, and the owner was um, actually rescued this kitty cat. Just because she felt that you know this this little creature requires some attention, and of course empathy, compassion. You know, as a surgeon, you want to fix it, but you feel so 
so compelled to to save this animal. So yeah, there was uh, there was a very heartfelt moment of connection with the owner slash rescuer and his little tiny kitty cat. Yes, you so, mentioned uh, signalman. What was Journey's signalman? Yeah, so it was uh, it was uh, basically a five month old Siamese mm. um, that was rescued. I don't recall exactly where it came from or she came from. She was basically a tiny, tiny cat and basically didn't look good at all. Uh, And she was, the one was pretty concerned about exercising tolerance. She would be basically having challenges um, as far as labor breeding and uh, lethargy and the appetite was good. And then of course they had um, a physical examination performed by the general practitioner that uh, diagnosed her with this um, continuous heart murmur. So because of that, you know, they referred to me for further evaluation and uh, determining what the next step was. Yeah, that is when I moved on and I started requesting some um, diagn- additional diagnostics. And uh, if you give me permission, I can certainly elaborate on that. Unless you Certainly, yeah, to. I absolutely would love for you to elaborate. Did you have a chance to speak to the family before performing diagnostics? And if you did have a chance to speak to that family, what did they say? What was going through their mind about their cat's exercise intolerance? Yeah, so it was a good point. Yeah, prior to, I mean, this is part of our job as professionals, you know, is communication with clients. And uh, clearly I was I was concerned. You know, I had an idea what possibly could be happening with this with journey. And I, I explained, like, look, you know, my, my concern is this is something that is more than just young kitty cat that is not being fed enough. This is something that is very like an underlying uh, congenital problem that is leading to this um, hemodynamic changes that lead to this intolerance. And of course, you know, emotional level, you know, the lady was very attached already, even even though she had it for a couple of months, but she was like very nervous, you know, is she gonna make it? It's something that how much it's gonna cost? It's something that we're gonna be able to fix it. So there was a lot of emotion during the consultation. And of course, you know, as a surgeon, as a human being, I learned to empathize with people and just, you know, everything can be fixed, but being extremely realistic is important as well. So I basically request a bunch of uh, testing, you know, starting from the lab work to the, you know, to an echocardiogram, an EKG, and, you know, I repeated my physical examination. I did an exam because I wanted to confirm the uh, changes that the other vet listed, then yeah, this patient had a heart murmur, uh, four out of six. Clearly, the body condition score was not ideal at all. I requested, and of course, I don't know if you want me to to go on. Yes, please. What was the next diagnostic you performed? So yeah, so we consulted with um, a cardiologist, performed an echocardiogram, an EKG, and um, and clearly he did, the Doppler, and uh, and he saw these changes, all these turbulences, and all these Anormality associated with the with the heart, and uh, clearly was a condition where there was possibly left-sided, uh, some sort of um, the heart failure uh, starting, and uh, that was confirmed on chest X-rays that were taken just um, the same day of the echo with some um, pulmonary 
very, very mild evidence of pulmonary edema. And, um, you know, and clearly these um, diagnostics were leading towards something related to the heart. Right. So, so you, this is fascinating right here because what we're talking about is a kitty cat who's not doing well. The parents notice this cat is off. My cat seems just not like a normal kitten. It's kind of lazy kitten. Takes it in to see, right. you know, a team of medical specialists, ends up getting referred to you, a surgeon, and then you also collaborate with the specialist and a cardiologist, which is fascinating in the terms of the scope and the expanse of the medical team. And during the ultrasound of the heart, the cardiologist says, we've got a problem here. And they're starting to notice on x-rays that there's fluid in the lungs. How did you, what did you mm -hmm. start to think when the cardiologist said to you, we might have left-sided heart changes with fluid in the lungs? Yeah, so the first thing I'm like, this kitty cat, unfortunately, the prognosis is not really good. Oh. So um, that, that was the concern. And, um, you know, just by communicating with a cardiologist, and we're dealing with three kilograms, you know, you're talking about six and a half pounds, get a cat, very tiny. And um, the challenge was, are we going to be able to fix it? So I consulted with them, you know, they do a lot of interventional radiology stuff. And I said, you know, is there a way that you could address that? Is something that we could we could help. Uh, he was, of course, declining his service, stating that, unfortunately, was not able to address or fix the underlying problem that um, arose based on the uh, echo that was performed in the Doppler by measuring all the velocity of the arterial pressure as well as the pressure gradients, all these very fancy <laughs> terms that cardiologists end up using it, you know, I get lost all the time. But um, yeah, so the only the only solution left was a surgical intervention. And um, it was back on me, everything was back on, I gotta get, I need to have pretty serious conversation with the clients because, you know, you're dealing with possibly a fatal event uh, in a very stunted animals. Your conversation with the family, excuse me a second, your conversation with the family, because this is what you're talking about is absolutely scintillating. You're approaching the family and saying, we recognize the heart problem. You have a tiny six pound cat and we need to do open heart surgery. What did they say Correct. in that moment when you told them that their six pound precious kitten needed open heart surgery? Oh yeah. They were like, well, that means that sentence, you know, they were very pretty shocked. Uh, clearly they were not expecting an open heart surgery. And I think when we refer to open heart surgery in humans is something that, you know, nowadays is pretty common, but it's pretty serious. And they were concerned that the that journey would not make it. That is the challenge in not convincing, but educating them to make them understand that despite the seriousness related to the surgical intervention, there was always hope. And I think as surgeons, you can you can agree, uh, sympathize. It's a lot about how you communicate with clients, you know, how much uh, bond you create with them and mostly create a trust that allows us to save those animals because they don't have a voice and they rely on you and your expertise as a guide to make sure they're making the right decision. So, yeah, it was, uh, they were shocked. They were, they were absolutely concerned. And of course, I told them that surgery could not be done um, very soon, it had to be pushed back and postponed. 
in light of uh, medical therapy that knew to be instituted, you know, like a Lasix, a diuretic, an ACE inhibitor, just to get this poor cat out of congestive heart failure. So we needed to, you know, wait a little bit. And uh, the patient underwent two weeks of uh, medical therapy prior to the surgery. Yeah, no doubt at all. It's about that bond, that trust, developing that relationship before you go into a surgery so you can talk to them about positives and negatives, hope and despair, and the prognosis that spans the entire spectrum. You are about to proceed with surgery. Are there any special preparations that this kitten went under prior to having uh, surgical intervention? Yeah, so we we reevaluated the patient in two weeks just to make sure that uh, he was uh, stable enough. We repeated um, the x-rays prior to the surgery. Um, I had the cardiologist do a quick echo to see if there was any change. And, um, you know, you okay the surgery. The patient was no longer in uh, congestive heart failure. And uh, preparation-wise was, um, you know, the the surgical team prepared, an anesthesiologist, and um, that will be ready for an open-heart surgery, which in this case will be a thoracotomy on the left side. And, um, you know, the entire team was ready. We had, um, you know, all the instruments prepared and, um, and sterilized, you know, hemoclips and uh, special cautery systems to prevent any 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 hemorrhagic episodes and uh, ensuring hemostasis so the entire team was ready so we we're excited to you know to get in and uh, help scat you're the entire team is ready the entire surgical team is gearing up everybody's becoming dialed in focused uh you mentioned potential for a hemorrhagic event or excessive bleeding Prior to doing this surgery, as you're putting on your gown, getting your gloves on, what's going through your head? What are your chief concerns as you're about to do this surgery? Yeah, I was concerned. My challenge was the state of that patient. You know, I'm talking about a very malnourished pat. I did not know personally, and there's something that I cannot control, whether or not she would um, survive. You know, will she be able, the question is, was going through my mind, is she going to be able to make it? You know, yeah. if everything goes well, and uh, I, I'm extremely positive and optimistic surgeon, I'm always, always looking at the you know, positive finish line, but there is that always that question mark, is the patient going to make it? And is the patient strong enough to overcome an anesthetic um, epistatic event and hypothermia and, um, you know, you truly dealing with a compromised heart, you know, and that just a few weeks prior was uh, decompensated. That was quite nerve-wracking. Nerve-wracking to say the least. So you're about to do the surgery. You, you enter the surgery. You start doing the surgery. I'm hoping you could describe that, that scene for me. What was it like actually making an incision into this kitten's uh, thorax, into this kitten's chest, spreading those ribs apart and actually looking at that beating heart. What was that surgery like? Yeah, that's that as a surgeon and, uh, and uh, you're a surgeon as well, you know how we would become a laser focus. So you put a drape on and, and now it's all go on, man, just bring it on. So that the challenge yeah. started. Yeah, so currently uh, was, uh, yeah, exciting, uh, but at the same time, super laser focus. Um, the goal was to, you know, to address the underlying problem. 
So, you know, you, you have this very tiny window and uh, you have the lung that expands and is interfering with your view. And, uh, and of course, you know, you see this just pounding and just beating and, uh, and it goes up and down. It's, it's like life in your hands and, and literally the, the heart size is so small compared to, you know, any other, your hands and the gloves and um, you, know, you have two additional surgical assistants scrubbed in with you and there's not enough even enough space for the little chest to accommodate the all these instruments we you know the retractors and um and additional suction systems and it was quite an experience even though i've done many of those but still you know you you there and uh, you're nervous but at the same time there was um that feeling of certainty you know i got this i can handle that i can i can help this cat and uh, i'll make sure i do my best to make sure this this patient survives it is an interesting duality right where you have this uh, fear of something disastrous happening but you almost have to have a steely reserve and abject level of confidence that you can help in a very tenuous situation and it's that duality that lived experience that really encapsulates what it is like in the OR and and I appreciate you bringing that to the table at what point during the surgery did you realize what the diagnosis was the diagnosis was made prior to going in so i really Excellent. knew what the what the the actual uh, problem was that's why i was very prepared for it to a point that you know we actually had um defrosted blood it was not really defrosted but it was, the blood was thawed it was warmed up yeah. and getting ready for transfusion in case of an emergency and uh, during the dissection and during the the approach and and um, with the goal of really doing what was supposed to be done, the vessel ruptured, and uh, now oh. there's blood everywhere in the chest, oh in the chest cavity. So the view is obscured; you can't see anything. And um, the first split second, and I tell you, Kearney, this is—I don't know if that have ever happened to you—but my heart truly stopped. I just felt like, for second, for split second. What am I supposed to be doing? This journey is dying. I can't see anything. What am I going to do? And this has never happened to me. And I, I call the miracle case. And I, I want to be very upfront. This was truly one of the, the most touchy and heartfelt moments in my life where I was responsible for somebody's death. I caused a rupture of that vessel. Mm. And in those two seconds, what I did blindly, well, truly I couldn't see anything. I grabbed my hemoclips who were reading and I just clumped, I clamped blindly into the area where I thought the hemorrhage occurred. And I don't know, and I got to tell you, that's why I believe in this um, uh, quantum field of, of, of intelligence. The bleeding stopped, we suction the blood out. There was literally no more blood leaking out, so the hemorrhage was completely controlled. We immediately transfused the patient, the patient intra-op. I can barely think, I can barely talk, just, just remembering the moment of fear. Uh, we transfused the cat, 
intraop, uh, we immediately place a chest tube, a nerve block, close the thoracotomy site, and uh, transfer the patient to the ICU. And um, I couldn't believe it. I, I walked out, I was shaking, and uh, everybody was like, I, I, I don't know how you did that. And uh, honestly, Kearney, I don't know how that happened. Just going in a puddle of blood with a hemoclips and just clamps a vessel that is the size of whatever, two, three millimeters, and the cat survives. I mean, of course, all the parameters were off, you know, the pulse ox, the blood pressure, everything, the, the cat was dying, was in complete uh, decompensation. And the good news, it never, the heart never stopped, so we never did um, CPR, but uh, the patient was dying. And after the bowls of blood and um, the really intense, intense care that was provided, the patient survived the first night, stayed with us for a couple additional nights, and then went home three days later. Unbelievable. That is unbelievable. The, the picture of you in the face of facing off with this chest that is now completely filled with blood, uh, actively hemorrhaging. The cat's vitals are declining precipitously. I mean, we, we know we're on the edge here. We're on the edge of losing this kitty cat. And you reach into this, into the darkness, essentially, into a chest that's filled with blood. And you reach down and you, you clamp things, which is like similar to just reaching into a pond that you can't see the bottom and pulling out a pebble. I mean, it's, it's a shot in the dark, literally and figuratively. You reach down and clamp and you clamp off the vessel and you save this cat's life and you're actually able to exit the OR. I mean, describe for me the sense of relief that you felt in that moment. Well, first of all, it was shock. I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. And when people talk about miracles, you know, people say all the time, I, I believe in miracles. I'm like, yeah, whatever. No, I, <laughs> from that day, I'm like, yeah, they are miracles. And I, I was completely shocked, surprised, um, happy, and so proud. I was so proud of myself. I mean, I could have walked out and say it's over and give it up. It's like, you know what? That's it. Is that I did my best. No, I did not do my best. No, I did not, because I, I walked away. It's like when the captain abandoned the ship, you never do that. He's the last one to leave, and I didn't give it up. At that moment of, of leadership, it goes back to the moment of um, owning you know, your responsibilities. That was my responsibility. It goes back to the question that you asked me earlier, how was the communication? How was the bond that you created with the client? I promised that woman that I would do my best. And knowing that in surgery, I say, you know what? It wasn't by instinct. It wasn't even planned. I didn't even think about, oh, let me go clamp a puddle of blood and see if I can grab some. By not. It was an instinct. It was an instinctual um, behavior that led to success and the links and loops into that promise that I gave back to the owner. So like, look, I promised I'd do my best and I, I was very proud. So yeah, the feeling of shock, fear, proud and <laughs> unsettlement. Yeah, it was all in one, all in one, in one moment. But yeah, I was super excited. And I looked at that cat in recovery. I was like, Jesus, thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate it. <laughs> you were there for us. 
Absolutely. The shock, the fear, the relief, the happiness. Uh, there's a tremendous cascade of emotions. And you mentioned miracles and luck. And I, I'm with you on that 100%. But I couldn't help but overhear just the, the amount and the intensity of the preparation and training that you brought into this surgery with you. And so uh, certainly as surgeons, we want luck to be on our side. But at the same time, what I'm hearing is a surgeon yourself who was tremendously prepared and well-read about the procedure that allowed you to experience success in this case. Just for anybody who missed it, um, could you remind us what the diagnosis was and how common you see this in cats? Yeah. So before I jump to the conclusion, I just want to give you a quick update on the kitty cat. So we, we repeated the echo a month later three months later, six months later, and uh, there was no more shunt. So the diagnosis was a PDA. A PDA. It was, um, it was a left to right PDA. And there were, there were some concerns about a reverse PDA because of intolerance and the difficulties in breeding. But um, after the clamping, <laughs> that I like it, I like to call, the, the patient survived. And that was the, the miracle. The patient did very well, and uh, I lost I lost the follow up. I think she texted me uh, like a year later to let me know that the patient was still alive and doing great. So yeah, it was a PDA, patent ductus arteriosus. That's incredible. Which is, um, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not very common. Um, it's not a very common congenital abnormality. Is um, roughly two percent of cats that have that, and the PDA the most common vascular anomaly present. I mean, there are other vascular anomalies, uh, but the PDA is the most common one. Do you want me to go into specifics as far as what it is? You certainly can. I, I know that there is such a tremendous appetite to know about PDAs or patent ductus arteriosus, the most common vascular anomaly. I wanted to ask you, number one, what advice do you have for families whose cat is diagnosed with this condition? And number two, what advice do you have for surgeons and doctors who start experiencing tremendous hemorrhage like what you saw in surgery? So the first thing to answer your first question is never give up. The prognosis in these cases, unless it's a reverse PDA, is pretty good. I mean, a lot of patients do well. Of course, my advice is to collaborate get uh, other specialties involved, uh, cardiologists, because nowadays you do have alternative um, modalities besides surgery to occlude or close down or shut down these vessels. You know, we interventional radiology by using coils and uh, plugs and stuff like that. You can certainly do that. So my suggestion is don't give up. Seek for somebody that has experience and make sure there is a, a collaborative effort with a cardiologist. To answer your second question, which is um, something that I train uh, often and I share my knowledge with the residents and interns, is surgery is an art. And uh, you said earlier, preparation is everything. Make sure you know about the case. Make sure you know what you're doing. Make sure that you have all the knowledge and the uh, information related to the procedure that you're performing and go in with confidence, knowing that you're going to do your best. At the same time, what is super important is stay calm. I have given a lecture about 
emergency, uh, behavioral patterns during emergency, during emergency situation. And, uh, you know, the most important point tips to be given and shared, number one, do never panic. Number two, step back, reset. Often when something goes wrong, people go into a panic mode that leads to <laughs> continue making mistakes. So step back, reset, go in, breathe, truly breathe. And don't be so laser focused that you're missing what the outside is. If you're doing something and you can't do it, you're pushing it. But in the meanwhile, you're a two, three hour operation. The patient is hypothermic, is not doing well. Stop, stop, wake, him, wake them up. So I think one of, one of the uh, challenges for many surgeons, I've been, again, I've been doing this for a long time now, there is the ego goes in. When the ego starts kicking in, you know, you do anything to prove to yourself that you, you know, you can do it. By times we push that envelope and not understanding your limits, you can sacrifice life and that is not okay. So suggestion is stay calm, reset, know your limits. And there are surgeries that don't perform uh, because I, I know that there is somebody out there that is doing a better job than me. So just be just be fair to you and be fair to your clients and mostly to these beautiful animals that we're here for. That's absolutely incredible. Tremendously well said. By not knowing your limits, you can sacrifice life. And that's something we don't want. You mentioned you were holding your breath during that surgery. And I've been holding my breath almost this entire time. This has been absolutely incredible. Unfortunately, we are up against that limit right now. And so I just really want to genuinely thank you for sharing this story and hearing about Journey and knowing that journey had quite a journey going through this particular procedure but the end of that journey was prosperous the end of that journey was positive and uh, we ended up having a really successful outcome and it makes me so happy uh dr infernuso do me a favor let everyone know where can they find you yeah uh social media the company that i work for is the animal surgical center in new york uh, we have multiple locations here, but yeah, social media, the website, and um, yeah, many anything that I can do to support anybody, anyone for suggestions, advices, and uh, and first of all, thank you so much, Dr. Campbell, for giving me the opportunity to share this amazing case, and, uh, and it was a pleasure meeting you. You know, hopefully, we can um, collaborate in the future. I hope so. I hope we can do a round two and just shout out your social media handle for everybody in the back. Yeah, it's um, Animal Surgical Center is the face on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and uh, yeah. and my personal uh, Thomas Infernuso LinkedIn and uh, Facebook and Instagram. Awesome, awesome. Yes, it was tremendously, tremendously an honor meeting you, and uh, thank you for sharing this case, and thank you so much for your time. You promised me that we'll be able to do a round two, so I'm going to definitely hold you Promise. to that. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, Kurt. It was a pleasure. And you have a great day. You too. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Cordelio Cat Lodal Honor protects your cat from ticks and fleas so you can be close. Cordelio Close. 
the first and only of its kind. It's a small, tasty chewable that's easy to give. Lotolaner is a member of the Isoxazoline class of drugs. The most common side effects are weight loss, rapid breathing, and vomiting. This drug class has been associated with neurological adverse reactions. Use with caution on cats with a history of seizures. Keep your cat close. Credelio close. All right, folks, there you have it. It was Dr. Tomas Infernuso. What an incredible case that he shared with us today. His insight, his intelligence, his preparation, and his surgical skills all coalesced to helping uh, this precious cat named Journey. But importantly, we cannot lose the spirit of collaboration using all the specialists in the building. Anybody who has insights into that particular condition or that medical case so that it can improve the chances of success. And he really dropped a gem and a pearl on us, which is know your limits, because if you don't, you may sacrifice life. And so do what's fair for you, the family, and of course, the precious beings that are in front of us. So that's it for Vet Mysteries podcast. Uh, Please join us for the next episode of Vet Mysteries. We have the most illustrious guests, which is always amazing. So just make sure that you remember that. There is nothing stronger than the human-animal bond. Please take care of your pets and each other. It's Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.